0: I want you to imagine for a moment feeling like a lot of things in the world are falling apart. Just try. Imagine feeling like other people's decisions are making your life difficult. Imagine feeling like things don't seem fair. Imagine feeling like you've lost control over your life. Imagine, and I hope you have to imagine this one, but imagine you're losing hope. You're losing hope that things will actually change. Some of you chuckled, I think because you resonate with this, right? I'm actually not talking about now. As much as I think many of those things are universal, some of the things I'm describing are from the time of Jesus. And the Jewish people living in a world that their world had been taken over by a foreign empire that had come in and was oppressing them, making decisions for their lives that they didn't want to abide by, taking away their freedoms. They lived in a world where it seemed like these promises that at one time were so powerful and so fresh from God were seemingly going unfulfilled. The Roman Empire ruled the Jewish world. These chosen people of God, the Jewish nation, were supposed to be ruled by their high king, God himself, and yet they served a foreign emperor. They had foreign soldiers. Oh, they had their temple. They had their place that they could gather and worship, and technically the Roman soldiers weren't supposed to come in there. They weren't really allowed to come in there. So you know what the Roman government did? They built a fortress right smack, smack dab next to the Jewish temple, just higher than the Jewish temple so that the Roman guards could stand in their towers and look right down into the Jewish temple. So as God's people were meeting together, all they had to do was look up and say, yep, there's the oppressor. There's the people taking away our freedom, watching us, looking over us to make sure we don't do anything they consider wrong. The Romans taxed the Jewish people heavily. Roman governors were hired, enlisted, I guess, by the empire to collect a certain amount of tax from their region. And so they would bid on this and they would commit to a certain amount of tax. And if they could collect over and above that, they could get independently wealthy. Well, the Roman governors were too important and busy to go around and collect all those taxes themselves. So they hired locals to do it. People that lived in the towns, that knew the people, they hired them, these tax collectors or publicans, as some translations call it. And these people had a quota that they had to meet of taxes to collect. And what they did is, if they could collect more than that, they could get wealthy as well. Imagine all the extra taxes that were collected. As you can imagine, the people hated these tax collectors, they were the traitors. They were the sellouts. They were the people that had turned on their own people and were using their own people for their personal gain. In fact, there's a phrase used several times in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners. It's as if the tax collectors weren't good enough to be included with the term sinners. They needed their whole department of evil just for them. That's how these people looked at tax collectors. In this dark and difficult, seemingly hopeless situation, the people held on to one potential hope, a promise that God had given them that a king would come for God's people to make things right. A good king would overthrow the foreign oppressors. A good king would protect his people with a powerful army. A good king would provide for his people jobs and land and food and shelter. A good king would make things right. And it's into this setting that Matthew, who had been a tax collector, writes these words. This is the genealogy Of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he uses these terms very intentionally right at the beginning of his gospel. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. What does that word mean? The anointed one, the anointed king. So Matthew, right at the beginning in verse 1 of this gospel that we're going to be looking at for quite some time now, he says, don't miss this. This is your anointed king. But he goes further. He says, not just any king, the son of David, the one promised to David from his line that would rule forever. And also the son of Abraham, because God had made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, God would bless everyone in the world. And so Matthew starts his gospel with the bold proclamation, the king has come. Today, we are beginning a new sermon series that will go through the book of Matthew. I don't know right now how long it's going to last. I laid out every passage that I would like to spend time on and preach through. And and the schedule for that is a little over two and a half years. (laughs) We're not going to do that. We're going to combine some of those. But it's going to be a while because there's a lot in the book of Matthew that I want us to be able to look at, to understand the king, our king has come and it changes everything. He changes everything for us, for our world, even still today. And so we're going to look this morning at an overview of some of the main themes from the book of Matthew. And then we'll dig into the text more intentionally and just walk through next week. But just to give you some introductory details, we just finished up a three-week series on what is the gospel. But we've got to go back and look at this term gospel. Gospel means good news. So when you look at the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark, gospel of Luke, gospel of John, it means the good news that was written and recorded by these people, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In this case, especially, it is the good news about Jesus Christ. Each gospel gives an overview of the life of Christ. His ministry, his teaching, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's kind of like each one is saying, this is Jesus. I want you to know who he is. Two of these, Matthew and John, were disciples. They followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. They spent time with him. They listened to his teaching. Two of the gospel writers did not, Mark and Luke, did not spend time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They came to know Christ as their Savior later, but they learned about Christ and his teachings from others and wrote them down. Each gospel has a slightly different emphasis regarding Jesus, different themes, So Matthew presents Jesus as the king and talks a lot about his kingdom. Mark talks about him as a miracle worker. Luke is a very detailed orderly account. Luke, the doctor, liked to give all the details. John is a very personal gospel. Talks about Jesus' personal interactions with people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called synoptic gospels, which is, I believe, Latin for seen together or taken together. It, It means that they're very similar And it really suggests that these writers were familiar with each other's writings. There's a long-running debate over who wrote first and who borrowed from who. I have studied that at great length in my schooling, and I find it to be a completely worthless study. To be blunt, it is a waste of time. Amen, right? Traditionally, it is accepted that Matthew's gospel was written first in the last hundred years or so. There's some evidence that Mark's gospel was written first. The grand, most important conclusion is it doesn't matter. Because people take that and what they want to do is compare word for word. Matthew says this and this teaching. Mark says this. And so one of them is wrong. One of them is right. Or one of them took from the other. And it's putting all of our human ideas on the text of Scripture. And that is a bad way to study Scripture. Matthew wrote what Matthew wrote for a purpose. Let's get to know that purpose. Mark wrote what Mark wrote for a purpose. Rather than trying to compare and set up an argument between these two guys, let's just listen. Let's just learn from them. The Gospels are written so that people will believe in Jesus. And this is important because they are not first and foremost biographies. When we think of a biography, I want to know when was the person born. Tell me all the significant events in his life in date order. Tell me roughly when they happened, how long they took. That's a very modern way of looking at things. Just give me the facts In order, it's a very modern, scientific way of looking at things. When we read the Gospels, we are entering into a Jewish mindset. They thought differently. They're not trying to present a chronological order of everything Jesus did and said. And each Gospel writer is not trying to present everything that Jesus did and said. So you're going to find some discrepancies in the order. You're going to have significant teachings in one that are not listed in another because each one is trying to get their point across. This is a cultural difference between us and them that we must accept rather than sitting in judgment and saying, why did they do this? Why did Luke put this parable here and not over here where Matthew put it? Think for a second. Have you ever heard me repeat a sermon illustration? Yes, my wife's like, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Do you think that it's possible Jesus often used parables over and over and over again? Absolutely. Now, would you want to sit down and read a gospel, let's say Matthew. He went to this city and he told the parable of the sower. Then he went to this city and he told the parable of the sower and here it is. Then he went to this city and he told the parable of the sower. Here it is. And then he went to this. Who would want to read that, right? So what Matthew does is he says, I remember Jesus talking about these topics and I'm going to lump them together here so that these people learn about who he is and what he's teaching. But modern people want to read that and say, oh, Matthew says he says it here, but Luke says he says it over here. The Bible is wrong. No, it's not. We're putting our modern mindset on a very Jewish way of thinking. Now let's look at the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's typical when you come to Scripture to look at the author. Matthew was, as far as we can tell, written by Matthew. Never says it. It's historical. There's really no reason to doubt it, although people love to. Again, waste of time. When was it written? We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. In Matthew's case, probably written sometime between 55 and 65 AD, simply because Jerusalem falls in 7 AD, and it's kind of a big deal, and Matthew doesn't mention it. So that's the best guess for probably written before the fall of Jerusalem. We're going to look at the content. That's what we want to do when we come to Scripture. We don't want to look at it as some educational exercise or some argument or some hairs to be split. We're going to look at the content. So today I want to go over four main themes. Four main themes that we're going to trace as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew. The king, the kingdom, the plan, and I've called this our response. We're going to look at the response of people in the Gospel of Matthew, but I want to use that to challenge us constantly. How are we responding to Jesus? Not just how did you respond to Jesus one time when you got saved. That's important, and we'll talk about that. But what about now? And what about now? And, and what about an hour from now? And, and what about tomorrow and the next day? How are we responding to Jesus? So let's start with the king. We're going to spend the most time here because this is the theme of Matthew and the theme of the sermon series. Here is our king. The people longed for a good king. They were desperate for hope, desperate for a rescue, desperate for God to send this promised king to save them from their troubles. And they had ringing in their heads this promise that each Jewish child would have been taught from infancy 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16 God tells David that one of his descendants will reign over Israel forever an unending perfect kingdom ruled over by God's king This was the great king promised by God that would make things right And that's why Matthew starts his gospel this way. It's because he wants his people to know that king, that promised king you've been waiting for, you've been hoping for, he has come, he is Jesus. And everything in the book of Matthew traces the fulfillment of these phrases right here. The promised king has come. Throughout Matthew, we're given indications that Jesus is this long-awaited king. Matthew chapter two, verses one and two, we're told that while Jesus was still little, these wise men, these magi from the east, travel and worship him as king. We're told in Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 4, or I'm sorry, verses 4 and 5 that Jesus rides into Jerusalem like a conquering king and Matthew applies Old Testament scripture to this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's saying, don't miss this. This is the king, the one you've been waiting for. Here he is. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Jesus is asked by the governor, are you the king? Jesus doesn't deny it. He answers cryptically, but he doesn't deny it. You have said so, Jesus replies. This seems to have an impact because when Jesus is hung on the cross, a sign is put over his head that says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now let's pause for a second. You're, ex- you're expecting a king. It's been declared the king has come. It's all these indications in Jesus' life that he is the king. Matthew keeps pointing out Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. You would expect an enthronement. You would expect some, the, the king to hop up on some glorious, beautiful throne and declare, I am the king and I am reigning. And this is... This is what they get. Their king, brutally put on a Roman cross with a crude sign over his head that is meant to mock him, the king of the Jews. And Matthew makes another point throughout this book. Jesus is our king, but he is not our king in the way we would want him to be. And the way we would expect him to be and not according to our human ideas. If we go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we see this. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now that's interesting because that was not the job of a king. The king ruled... The priests dealt with sin through the tabernacle or the temple, through the, the offerings and the sacrifices. But here there is this linking together that a good king, a great king would come that would save his people from their sins. But the king is more than just some good guy. Matthew one twenty three says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, Matthew is shining and, and flashing this bright light. Don't miss this. The king has come, but not as you expect him to be. He is not who you think he is. He is God Himself. God come to be with us. Jesus is anointed as King in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. God anoints him. Holy Spirit comes down and descends on him like a dove. But then a voice cries out from heaven This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Our king is the very son of God. And and I know today as modern Christians, you hear these things, you're like, I know this already. I hear this all the time, which is awesome. I'm glad we hear this all the time. But we need to put ourselves in their world. When we enter into the gospel, we need to enter into their mindset. They were expecting a human king with a human army So as you read the Gospels and you watch people wrestling with accepting Jesus and they're struggling, understand that they have a lens through which they're interpreting all this stuff and it doesn't match up. The reason this is helpful is not just because it's historical, but because as you interact with people in your life and you tell them about Jesus and they refuse to accept or they just don't get it, it's because they are interpreting it through their own lens based on their own ideas. And so the more we can understand this from Scripture, I believe the more compassionate we can be with people in our own lives. And we'll see how Jesus helped the people around him to understand who he is. And I think we'll learn a lot about how we can share Jesus with people around us. We also see in Matthew, the king doesn't do what they expect him to do. You expect a king to come in and kind of, Rub shoulders, well, maybe not today, but but normally, you know, rub shoulders with, with important people and powerful and wealthy people. But Jesus hangs out with common people, even the worst of sinners, even tax collectors. So the gospel writer Matthew begins following Jesus and he wants others to know about him. He gets his friends together and he throws a party, and his friends are, well, guess what? They're a bunch of tax collectors. And he invites Jesus over, and Jesus goes. Important, probably wealthy religious leaders of the day are looking down their nose at this and saying, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And their king says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners their king is different in Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 Jesus tells his followers that he is about to suffer and die from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life flashing light Matthew is saying, don't miss this. This is our king, but not as you expected him to be. Jesus is exactly who and what we need as our king. But he is so often not at all what we expect or what we can begin to understand. Too often people come to Jesus and they read about him and they say, well, I know he says this, but I think he actually means this. And we want to reinterpret and reimagine and re-explain Jesus in ways that make sense to us rather than saying, he is my king. I'm going to listen to what he says. This is why Matthew gives us so much of Jesus in his own words. As we walk through this, you're going to see there are five major discourses, major teachings, long sermons by Jesus. And again, these are probably pulled from multiple places and put together. You know one, the big one's probably the most famous one, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long teaching of Jesus so that we can listen to him in his own words. And as we go through Matthew, I want you to think and to ask yourself constantly, is Jesus my king? I think it's easy as modern Christians, to say, oh, I believe in him. I think it's easy to say, I believe things about him. I think it's easy to say, I I like things about him. I I love him. I accept that he loves me. But we need to ask ourselves, is he our king? See, when a king says something, you do it. When a king says go, you go. When a king says come, you come. When a king says, I'm going to provide for you, and he has the power to do so, he will. And we trust, no matter what, is Jesus our king? Well, of course, a king has a kingdom. If you're keeping track, yes, there are four main themes. Yes, they will get faster and faster. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 records the theme of Jesus' first public teaching and probably an overview of of almost all of his teachings, says from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The king has a kingdom. He is going to overthrow the earthly oppressor. He is going to get rid of the sickness. He is going to get rid of the poverty. He has a kingdom. It is coming. And he says it's almost here. And throughout all of his earthly ministry, it's, it's here And it's almost here. It's it's here in small ways and it's growing and it's going to be great. And there's this ongoing, passionate, big ask from Jesus to us. Trust me, my kingdom is coming. But like the king, the kingdom is completely unexpected. Often the the nature of the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew is described as an upside-down kingdom, which means completely different than what we would have expected or how we would have done things. We've already seen this in the king. The king came to serve, came to die, came to hang out with the lowly and the sinners. And that's mirrored in his kingdom as he calls us to follow him, to trust him and do the same. We see it in the disciples he calls these were not the important of society. These were not the cream of the crop. These were not the guys that, that graduated from the best institutes in the world. No, these were the commoners. And he calls to them. and He says, follow me. And I got to tell you, as, as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, but also just as a Christian in the world today, that gives me hope. And I pray it gives you hope. Because man, if he can use these guys, trust me, he can use you. He used people like Matthew, one of the most hated types of people among the Jewish people at that time. We see it in the parables that he teaches. That the kingdom's not just going to come in and conquer and overwhelm, it's going to start small and grow. We see that it's a hidden treasure that has to be searched for. That it's a narrow way that has to be walked We see that he's not the conquering king, although he will be, but that he's the good shepherd who has come to love and to care for, to serve and even to suffer. And we see that he calls us as members of that kingdom to do the same. And here's where things are going to get tough in the book of Matthew. As Jesus calls us to follow in his kingdom and to trust him, and even to suffer for him. This kingdom is unlike any earthly kingdom. And we need to come to the Gospels, we need to come to Matthew and say, Jesus, teach us about your kingdom. And we need to repent of the ways that we come to Jesus and say, your kingdom must be this way. That's backwards. We need to come and learn about the kingdom from the king. Another theme throughout Matthew. I've called it the plan. Another way of thinking about it is fulfillment. This idea that God throughout the entirety of the Old Testament was working. He had a plan. And as modern Christians, I think it's so easy to come to the New Testament and say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't need that Old Testament. God's different today. He's doing something different. Matthew blows that out of the water. Matthew constantly digs into the Old Testament and say, Jesus is doing this because this was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus is doing this to fulfill what God said in the Old Testament. Matthew has well over 100 references to the Old Testament. Many of these are direct quotes. Others are simple allusions to the truths of the Old Testament. This shows that Jesus is not some plan B of God. And Matthew is specifically writing to the Jewish people to say, this is your promised Messiah. God told you about him. If you believe this in the Old Testament, you must believe in Jesus Christ. I think as modern Christians, we need to listen to Matthew. And we need to learn to listen to the Old Testament. It's hard because as difficult as it is to get into the culture of the New Testament, it's closer to our culture today. But as we get into the culture of the Old Testament, it's even more difficult. Their ways, their customs, the language, all of it is that much more difficult. But we need to get to know God and His eternal plan at work throughout all of history, Old and New Testament. And then we're going to look at our King Jesus and His life and his ministry, and it will shine all the more brightly because of who Jesus is in fulfillment of God's plans throughout all of history. Another major theme in the book of Gospel, or in the book of Matthew rather, is response. How do people respond to Jesus? Jesus' life and his teachings were not just educational curiosities to be discussed debated. And throughout the gospel, we see people that come into contact with Jesus that are forced to make a decision. Who do I think he is? And that decision will radically change their lives. Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, Jesus calls to Peter and Andrew. He says, come, come on, follow me. They're fishermen. He says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And look at the response. At once they left their nets and followed him. This is a pattern throughout scripture. People who follow Jesus must leave their old life behind, who they are, what makes them important, what gives them security, and they must step out in faith to follow where Jesus is leading. Other encounters with Jesus don't go so well. You may know the story of the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19, verses 21 to 22. And he comes to Jesus and he's holding on to all of his wealth. He thinks he's a big shot and he just wants to add to that. I'm going to make myself even a little bit better by this Jesus guy. He says, what must I do? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come Follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew chapter 12, verses 23 to 24, we see the strongest negative response to Jesus. The Jewish teachers and leaders are gathered around. Jesus is doing miracles and they begin to hear murmurings in the crowd. Could this be the son of David? Could that be Jesus, could he be the Messiah? And look at how they respond. But when the Pharisee heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. This is a turning point in the book of Matthew. Because the Jewish leaders that were there to prepare the people for the coming of their Messiah look at Jesus and proclaim to the people Basically, he's not your Messiah. He's the spawn of Satan. He's a demon. And they reject him wholeheartedly. It gets personal in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This man who had left so much behind, says, I believe you're my king. I believe in you. I have followed you. Of course, we're going to look throughout the gospel that that doesn't mean Peter never struggled. And he becomes a great example of someone who has great faith, but also great struggles, who is also greatly forgiven and restored. And there's wonderful hope through that message. As we go through Matthew, I hope that you will find it interesting. I hope you'll learn a lot about Jesus and the disciples and the first century world. I hope you'll learn a lot about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what the gospel is, how to live as a disciple. I hope you'll learn these things. But more than anything, I pray we will respond to Jesus Christ. Because a king is not meant to just be understood. He is meant to be accepted and trusted and worshiped. And so throughout the gospel, we're going to look at what is our response. Will we trust him? Will we follow him? I want to give you some homework. I know that gets you so excited. It's simple. This week, I want you to read through the gospel of Matthew. If you can't read it all in one chunk, that's okay. It shouldn't take you more than, I don't know, maybe two hours or so. Read through the Gospel of Matthew yourself. I'm going to preach through it, but we're not going to necessarily have time to read every single passage in the sermons. We're going to deal with some parts more than others, but I want you throughout this sermon series to be reading through it yourself. Take the time. Look for the places where Jesus is presented as king, even in and especially in very unexpected ways. Look for the upside down and unexpected kingdom. And ask yourself, do we trust his kingdom, his reign, his rule in that way? Look for how Matthew ties in the Old Testament promises. And look especially, every time Jesus interacts with a person, ask yourself, how does that person respond to Jesus. And what do we learn about our response through that thing? More than anything, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, look at Jesus and tell yourself over and over and over again, my king has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dig into this wonderful book, the Gospel of Matthew, and we learn more about our wonderful Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would help us to go deep into these truths. I pray that you would impact our lives with who Jesus says he is, and with the kingdom he says he is bringing, and with how we should be following him, Father, we all struggle with putting our own ideas and our own expectations on Jesus. And I pray that the more we get to know him, the more we would lay those things down and accept who your son says he is and accept the salvation that he has to offer through the unexpected kingdom and the unexpected kingship that he came to give as we look at our King who died on the cross and rose from the grave and promises salvation for everyone who believes. We pray it in the powerful name of our King Jesus. Amen.